welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin. We're coming at you with another fantastic episode. It's We're into September now, so we're getting really close to that one-year anniversary since we started this little show here, so that's quite exciting, but we have a lot of things to talk about with uh, drone swarms from possibly the Baltic states, uh, new maps released from China, big things happening in Syria, the ADL getting called out on Twitter, you know, a lot of things going on. So, Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing good, Conrad. The news are very different this week and, um, you know, definitely a lot of uh, exciting things to talk about. I, I'd, I'd say a bit of diversity, definitely, in the month of August and moving on to September. So, you know, we will be celebrating, I suppose, the new year on the Orthodox calendar. It is, what, uh, 7,532, I believe, the year of our Lord, uh, since the creation of the earth. But, yeah, here we are, and the Orthodox calendar is reset in September, so we are looking forward to that. And, of course, uh, the one-year anniversary anniversary of the Russian mobilization is coming up in a few weeks' time, so we'll kind of give an assessment today as to where exactly the conflict stands, and it you know, hasn't really moved much, but there's also a lot of international affairs talking to talk about here, including the Middle East, Africa, like big updates, including from, you know, there's also some interesting affairs happening in Asia as well, which we'll touch on, but definitely stay tuned, guys. Really cool episode ahead. Yeah, we've got a lot of things to talk about, and be sure to tune into this most recent episode of Ether Hour this week. We give a kind of even broader meta update on the status of World War Three, and, you know, perhaps where the Russian world can go after a possible victory is achieved in Ukraine. I think you're really going to like that episode. I'll probably shout it out again when we talk about some relevant stuff. But let's just dive right into it. Dimitri, what happened in the city of Skov in Russia? Where did these drones come from? I mean, how, what was the damage? What what happened? Well, yeah. So in the ancient Russian city of Pskov, which is essentially right on the Estonian border in the northwest region of Russia, it's you could almost say it is the you know, even more, more, it's more of a Western city than even Novgorod. And honestly, it was founded by some of the earliest Russian Rus settlers, as well as the Slavic tribes in that region. So it does go really far back. But Pskov was always on the front lines of the, you can say, Russian world, uh, you know, against former Estonian tribesmen, as well as some of the Catholic crusaders attacking Russia in the Northwest. And it seems that history is repeating itself as where essentially the main Russian military air, airport was attacked on the... I believe it was the 30th of August at, at night and uh, was attacked by it's what seems to be Ukrainian drones. Ali Zelensky has openly claimed that the drones were Ukrainian. And in, in about 30 minutes, uh, significant damage was done to some of the massive transportation Illusion IL, I believe it's IL planes, which, were, you know, essentially one, one of these planes is worth roughly about... 50 million American dollars each. and But it's not even the worth of the planes themselves. It's the cargo which they carry very safely over large distances. So essentially, these planes could carry massive amounts of military, humanitarian aid, cargo, even troops to places very far away, not just Ukraine, but also potentially Africa. And Sadegrad did report that potentially this attack of these uh, either Ukrainian or NATO drones, like we'll talk about this in a second, actually, who did these drones belong to, uh, have caused significant disruptions to Russian logistics, at least in that western military uh area of, of of russia and of course this um this attack you know it could be called terrorist in a way because again civilians were harmed we don't have any at least uh full full data on any casualties uh, but definitely people people were harmed the fact that it did, it did occur at night it's, the, the ukrainian drones did strike directly at midnight 
very symbolic there. And the other consideration, again, Conrad, this is where most of the conspiracies arise from, is where do these drones actually fly from? Because if you look at a map, Pskov is, you know, hundreds and uh, hundreds of kilometers away from Ukraine. So they had to have flown either over Belarus, which would bring up the question as to where was Lukashenko and where were his anti-air defenses, where was... um any sort of Belarusian scouting for this massive swarm of drones flying to Pskov in Russia, in northern Russia, or even worse, right? Did these drones, were they actually launched from inside of Russia itself, which again leads, leads us to consider the fact that Ukrainian terrorists are still very active on Russian soil. Perhaps they were responsible for the killing of Prigozhin, which we spoke about last week. And again, other scenarios, other potential, uh, you know, examples could include these drones actually flying out of the NATO, uh, NATO country, Estonia, right next door, which would make sense logistically, and they wouldn't have to fly very far. It would only take about half an hour, maybe an hour or so to reach this airport, or perhaps they were even launched from the Baltic Sea. And the consideration here is, Conrad, where the Ukraine does not have a navy, so which ship were these drones launched off? And this has massive, of course, international relations implications because, well, whoever declared war on Russia, I'm not sure if it was Ukraine, but Zelensky definitely claims that these drones were apparently Ukrainian. It was a new technology. These drones can fly up to 700 kilometers without stopping, endless battery life, satellite powered. I don't know what Zelensky's claims were, you know, exactly. But yeah, it's, it's very mysterious and definitely a lot of damage caused to Russian infrastructure. Apparently these drones are Australian-made drones, and again, the amount that was used was pretty unique, I guess, compared to other drone attacks, which kind of lends some credence to the idea that it could have been sent from Estonia, because in the past, look, we know some of these ones on Moscow are definitely sent from saboteurs within Russia, you know, they send one, two at a time from a certain location, they all send then one or two at a time each from a few separate locations, but this was a pretty large swarm prompting i think a lot of russian sources said it was from estonia and i think the fact that Zelensky was so eager to you know say that he was the one that hit the targets i guess on the one hand is a you know it's a win for him to show the u.s that see we're able to do what we can do and actually strike back but also a way to you know divert you know the obvious fact that this might have been from estonia which could you know really trigger a russian escalation but i mean think about that i mean the estonians do that real quick thing give Zelensky a big win because, you know, the uh, Baltic countries don't want to see this uh, die down at all. They're some of the most bellicose when it comes to all of this. But when it comes to that Ether Hour episode we were just talking about, did I not call this before any of this happened? I was, I hate to say it, but I was, you know, getting pretty explicit about, you know, the mental deficiencies of, of Balts. And I think if this really is happening, that they were willing to do something like this to you know, just save face for Zelensky, you know, hurt a few planes, you know, make a bit more of a tangible difference in the war effort than just the symbolic attempts on Moscow skyscrapers. Well, here they are. I'm wondering if they're ready for, I'm wondering if they're ready for some kind of response. That's right. And I would say it was very interesting hearing the Russian media, for example, the big Vladimir Solovyov show, uh, Solovyov Shapiro, of course, had all these experts and geopolitical personnel on to speak on this particular attack. And a lot of the big hawks were very, very fiery. They were essentially calling for World War Three. They were saying, look, this is worse than the Moskva cruiser and the Kerch Bridge bombing combined. And I would agree in terms of actual financial loss. The Moskva cruiser was quite old. It was you know, over 60 years old, kind of outdated naval technology there, despite it being the flagmanship of the Black Sea Fleet destroyed in early 2022 after the SMO has begun. And of course, the Kerch Bridge essentially only affected civilians. And I'm not saying that this terrorist act, you know, you know, the attack on civilians isn't a big deal, but it's if we're speaking simply about monetary loss for Russia as a country, this was definitely the largest terrorist strike we've seen to date. 
in terms of uh, you know scale. And so somebody has to answer. And so a lot of the hawks in Russia were basically calling for war against the Baltic states, against Lithuania, Estonia. They were saying, well, who cares about Ar- Article 5 NATO? They attacked us first. And this was like quite radical, I think. I've This is a bit even pushing some of Medvedev's rhetoric being said recently. And until Zelensky made that statement where he said, look, these drones were ours, I think even those pretending in the Russian, in the sort of in the Russian media, pretending to be hawks, pretending that look they wouldn't mind a World War Three. Well, inside they were probably sweating and saying, "Oh well, I'm not really prepared for it." I don't think. I think even they kind of calmed down a little bit when Zelensky announced that look, it was actually our Ukrainian drones, it wasn't Estonians. But you know, Zelensky, as you said, could have just covered for his uh, NATO allies, and instead they could have been absolute some absolute madmen in the Estonian military or you know the Air Force who actually took on this operation, but. Yeah, perhaps they should calm down because we are drawing very close to like a world war scenario, which is essentially the name of the show. It's almost like every week there's an escalation which is, goes beyond all, uh, you know, scopes. And in fact, both of these shows we spoke about, I suppose, terrorist acts uh, happening on Russian airports, this Pskov airport and the Shinimitsev airport in Moscow, out of which Prigozhin's plane flew out and essentially had a bomb on board. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's there's a real threat in Russia at the moment. Nobody's really safe. And that's uh, kind of concerning, especially for those people, uh, some of our relatives living in Russia at the moment. And, you know, just for anybody active in those Western uh, Russian areas, um, you know, the Ukrainians are not calming down, the terrorist acts are not slowing down. And again, we're just reminded that this war is is a real war. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a total war because civilians are being involved as well to some extent. And really, nobody can be sleeping on this. Nobody can... Uh, you can't really calm down and go about your daily life without the the threat just being there looming over you. I think in many ways the the, the threat of I mean we talk about this all the time how you know it wasn't called World War II during the Anschluss and like you said how each day each week you know it seems like there's a new escalation again sure it may seem to get old that we cover each little border incursion each little this each little that but as those things coincide with the political realities we usually discuss in the same episodes that's when you can connect the dots and start to see which of these situations is more or less likely, you know, which ones are more likely, which are less likely to actually trigger something like a hot World War Three scenario. And again, listen to that Ether Hour episode, episode 15. We talk a lot about each kind of border nation with Russia and their status and what may happen to them if the Russian world, you know, truly actualizes itself. So, you know, you know, very controversial for non-Russia heads to listen to. So be prepared. But you know, as far as, you know, we, we've talked about Estonia, I think it's important that we also talk about, you know, when it comes to World War II as well, you know, the Polish border, always an important place. But this time, you know, with Belarus, you know, peak pale of the settlement region. And much like we talked about a few weeks back, how the Poles were accusing Belarusians of flying their helicopters over Polish territory, over the Polish border, it seems now that Poland has done the same to Belarus. And this time, and look, I'm not just saying this because I'm a Lukashenko shill and don't like Poles, which, you know, that may be slightly true. It's I'm saying it because the video evidence at hand is more, you know, is better in the Belarusians' favor. The only video I saw when the Poles accused the Belarusians of flying the copter over was one video from a distance showing what easily could have been on the other side of the border. That's where I actually saw a Belarusian flag. And then the other ones I saw supposedly from the ground. I didn't see any markings on the helicopters whatsoever. So really, no way to confirm. But this video showing the Polish helicopter entering Belarusian territory is taken from above and just clearly shows the ter- the helicopter go from one side of the border to the other. And it's not in there for very long. It only goes about, you know, it goes a, about a kilometer into the into the country. But this was, you know, the Belarusians condemned this and talked about responding and all sorts of things. So it seems there's a lot of tits for tat going there. But 
yeah, I mean, Poland is the same in these Baltic countries. It's always going to be, you know, they're the spearhead of NATO into the Russian world, you know, Kaliningrad. In many ways, if you consider Kaliningrad and Belarus Russian territory, the Baltic countries are like exclaves already behind Russia's front line, if you think about their NATO-facing border. So it's it's really an interesting geographical situation. Yeah, and it's 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 also of course curious. I mean, uh, on a much deeper level, it's how the most essentially the most pious and you can say the most virtuous Catholic and Christian countries are the ones bordering with Russia and are and will be the vanguard in case a third world war does break out between the European Union and NATO and and the Russian Federation. It's almost like the Christians, the actual Christians of Europe, who are still holding on to those traditions from the Middle Ages and the their Roman Catholic past, will suffer the most. So Poland, Hungary, etc., Austria. Uh, Austria as well. So those countries, it's almost as if it's strategic and NATO has escalated the matter to, you know, the NATO leadership does, you know, the secular countries are all in the West and they're all quite safe. Well, meanwhile, the most pious and you suppose the most right wing and conservative nations are are there almost almost having to respond to each one of these uh, small escalations and provocations from either Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, whomever, whomever it may be, but they're also at the vanguard, so they have to make those tough decisions. And, you know, we did, uh, I mean, we both watched that interview with Viktor Orban and Tucker Carlson. So his positions on, you know, the domestic politics of Hungary, we did see almost an internal view in the English language. It was actually very clear that, look, uh, Viktor Orban does have a conservative vision for Hungary and also a you know, sort of conservative vision for what Ukraine and Russia needs to, needs to be. And, you know, he was essentially calling for peace. He was not calling for the support of Ukraine until the last Ukrainian things of this nature. And it was actually very heartwarming to see and it does show that look perhaps in the future there could be a real cooperation between central catholic europe and the eastern eastern orthodox countries i think there there's definitely potential there i was frankly surprised how pro-russia orban was being with his rhetoric not because i don't believe he is but because you're in the european union you have to be careful you know the austrian freedom party which used to be in power they got ousted by a you know kind of a sting operation, accusing them of being pro-Russia, getting them in compromising situations about taking Russian money and whatnot. So you can't just come out and be like, I like Russia. That's just not really allowed if you're going to be, you know, in the European community. But he really did speak very magnanimously about them and is very obviously, very obviously has no interest in continuing this war whatsoever and sees and would, and only seeks to, and would really only benefit in a situation where relations with Russia return to I mean, really better since they've been since before Soviet times, frankly. Like, I mean, this is, that's what, that's where it would go to benefit Hungary and some of these other countries. But with all that being said, unless you have anything else to say about Central Europe or Belarus or the Baltics, I think it's important that we talk about, you know, it's September now. The rains are going to start coming in Ukraine, which is basically going to stall, going to stall any movement in either direction. We've heard rumors of the Russian mobilization. I know you've been combing the depths of telegram for for updates and military sources and whatnot but what's going to happen and is uh we know the robotine uh, area has been really defended heavily by russians recently uh, i saw people joking that they've defended that little farm area longer than now the ukrainians were able to defend mariupol which was pretty funny but i, I think is is ukraine really going to go for broke here in the next few weeks and then what's russia going to do in the meantime as the as the rains come 
It, it looks to me as if, based on the failed counteroffensive, at least this part of it, and it seems like a, a, a large portion of the Ukrainian uh, armored tech was actually destroyed. And now we're speaking about, of course, phase two, which includes not just taking small villages in Zaporozhye or uh, Kharkovskaya Oblast or maybe Donetsk, but also we're talking about uh, actually introducing air, Ukrainian aircraft to the equation. And you know this this means, of course, Ukrainian Air Force pilots needing training. And roughly, I mean... Uh, you would understand that it would take roughly, I believe, over 300 hours for an Air Force pilot to actually, that's hours of being up in the air, of, of being treated as, as somewhat of a professional. And you can only roughly fly about one to two hours a day. So that would mean almost 150 days of continuous training in an aircraft in order to be seen as competent. And even then you're seen as somewhat of a rookie in the Air Force that, you know, if you haven't flown between 100 and 300, over 300 hours, you are considered as somewhat of of a sort of newbie and you you in fact may even fall in the first yeah you know, say if, if there is if a fight does break out in the air so these ukrainians receiving this these new batches of air force or at least these promised air force equipment will need to at least pr be provided some training so it does coincide with this pre uh, this pre-winter season which as you mentioned it's going to start raining it'll get slightly muddy not as bad as in the fall and autumn next year which definitely will see a three-month break but we will be getting at least at least 120 150 days of somewhat of a stalling and perhaps even going into to the snow snowy period of november december and once the snow does fall i'm not sure we may see more movement again on the ukrainian end but it does seem like the counteroffensive has at least come to a halt somewhat. We won't see like massive waves of Ukrainian tanks moving forward anymore. I think it's definitely calmed down to that extent. And frankly, look, it's coinciding with what you said, the rumored Russian mobilization, which hasn't been announced officially. In fact, some members of the Russian Duma have uh, openly stated that, look, this has not been confirmed. This only online rumors these are ukrainian diversionists throwing these news into the into the russian media sphere do not listen to them but we have to be consider considerate that putin was officially asked in june of actually the 13th of june this year that you know is russia going to conduct a second wave of mobilization as a lot of people were calling for including Igor Strelkov, some of the even uh, pro-donetsk uh, militants on the front lines, they were saying, look, we need more reinforcements. And Putin said, no, look, we've recently conscripted in 2023 an additional 150,000 fighters. We don't need to start a second mobilization yet. And that was in June. And that was 11 days prior to the Prigozhin revolt. So whether or not the situation has changed, we're not sure. But is September coming up in a few weeks, it will be the one year anniversary of the great mobilization, which was announced last year and 300,000 reservists were of course in um included into the russian smo operation and now i guess we're we are reaching that one year anniversary i would say if you are going to do a mobilization in russia we're not necessarily against that i don't think me and conrad strategically speaking from a russian perspective are against that in fact it, it, to cover this vast territory between kharkov bryansk uh, all the way down to Kherson through Zaporozhye, you do need a lot more troops. Simply what Russia has right now, they're stretched way too thin, especially if they want to at least take Zaporozhye and a lot of the Kherson Oblast back. So, you know, there is that huge consideration that Russia will need more troops. And maybe now is the best time to actually begin the second wave of mobilization, even though Russian politicians are calling against it. And mostly the, the rhetoric, at least from the so-called liberals within Russia are saying that, look, it's not necessary. This is a bit hawkish. Well, Russia's literally in a war. Putin has called it an open conflict at this point. It's no longer just an operation of some sort. And perhaps now it's 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 about time to have a reality check and to get things get things going, especially if there's going to be a lull in any sort of actions on the Zaporozhye, Donetsk, and the Kharkov front. Yeah, I've heard a lot of rumors of attempt beach, attempted beachheads being made on the Kherson Islands, you know, off the in the Dnieper River, you know, off the you know coast of Kherson city itself, around there, and everything. And 
of course, they're going to be trying for everything. Their biggest, you know, push through is in that Orekhov direction, you know, towards Robotini and these other places. But they, they talk about all these reports like they're on the outskirts of Melitopol already. And that's just not true at all. There's like multiple substantial towns between them and even the outskirts of Melitopol. But, you know, they're really trying to build the hype, keep the support coming because the Ukrainians are really afraid that if the rains come before they can make a push through the Russian front lines that... The U.S. isn't going to be as generous in the in their support when the Russians really start to push back in a major way. But we're, of course, going to be watching for all of that, watching Putin and Peskov and, you know, all of these players and what they're what they're saying about it. But with all of that, I think we're going to move to China and China released this. It's like their new standard map, it was called, was was what they released. And it's, it's kind of their official announcement of what they view their borders as, I guess, you know, all their administrative subdivisions and whatnot. And they basically offended every single country around them. You know, obviously they call Taiwan part of China as it is internationally recognized, completely incorporating it, not differentiating it whatsoever. Of course, the same for Hong Kong, which has been in effect for years now, but they managed to offend Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Vietnam, and of course, India. Uh, we've talked a lot about Arunachal Pradesh and the Ladakh regions in the Himalayas, you know, the Chinese-Indian Himalayan border stretches, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. So on either end of that, there's a border dispute. You know, one more, like I said, in the eastern, you know, region, and another far near the border with Pakistan out there. And, of course, China called these regions Chinese. They pushed way down into the South China Sea in their uh, nautical border, almost all the way down to the borders with Malaysia and even Brunei and Indonesia, claiming all the South China Sea basically for themselves, all sorts of islands and everything. And they even decided to bump a little bit up north and you know who knows how intentional it was but it doesn't seem that they were paying too much mind to the sensibilities of russians when they made the map yeah that's right and um, of course uh, the representative of the russian ministry of international affairs needed to give an official answer maria zaharova did say that there is no controversy between russia and the middle kingdom notice she calls china middle kingdom as well which is pretty interesting it's kind of like a medieval civilizational uh civilizational term but she does say that bolshoi usuriski island even though on the map it was represented as completely chinese that the mutual dispute was settled in all the way back in 2008 half the island is russian half is chinese and this it was just an era so of course the uh maria zaharova also very controversial sort of love rob's right hand lady i would say definitely an interesting person in and of herself but she has said some cringe or bizarre things in the past you know for example calling the president uh president vucic of serbia prostitute things like that um but you know she has said that look we're not going to argue with china over this this was simply a mistake and the bolshoi suriski ostrov is uh is not chinese territory so no need to really uh, you know, m make any big issues out of that. I think the, the greatest, of course, issue would be something like Arunachal Pradesh between China and India, which Maria Zaharova didn't comment on because, again, now in this time of like brick consolidation or sort of bricks enlarging itself, they're really, I mean, look, we spoke about how exactly like the main threat to bricks was internal fighting because we're speaking about these vast differences in civilizations, you know, and the civilizations, these big nations are coming together in order to build some sort of economic coalition. And the main differences are uh, pretty vast and substantial, including territorial you know, issues. And this is what could break them apart, essentially small squabblings over essentially details and maps. But this is, I suppose, very similar to what the Russian 
southern military district released recently on its website. If you visit the Yuzhny Vayani Okrug website, you will see that the Russian military district for some reason removed Kherson and Zaporozhye from their vicinity, which in fact is just technically wrong. Zaporozhye and Kherson belong to the southern military district. This is the same base which Prigozhin technically captured in Rostov-on-Don. But nevertheless, those two regions have been missing from the southern military district map on the website for two months now without any answer. And perhaps somebody like replaced them with a different JPEG. Maybe somebody just uploaded a wrong map. But nevertheless, map issues, you know, are we, we've seen airport terrorist strikes. That's one consist consistency. And the second consistency is just people publishing maps, which are simply wrong and, uh, you know, giving their opinions. Essentially, it's almost like a soft power political move, right? Conrad publishing a map and claiming that, look, these territories belong to me. And I would say India definitely has uh, some issues with what China's claiming here. Yeah. And again, the BRICS stuff is is important. There's obviously, there's going to be attempts to drive wedges between BRICS countries. The US made a statement that we don't view BRICS as, an, as a future rival, but you know that comes as Peskov talks about a future BRICS currency being you know viable. It seems that Russia is the most excited about the BRICS currency, which I don't think that's necessarily a symbol of weakness. It just kind of shows they are truly the most sanctioned, you know, isolated country right now when it comes to financials and the ruble. Unlike for the ironically, like the first year of the war, certain other things were doing better, but the ruble maintained was doing okay. But now the ruble is not doing as well as it was, which is is interesting. But they've managed to stabilize their economy in other ways and secure their you know their trade routes and their markets with outside of the West, of course, which is why they can they can take the hits to the ruble. And it's not disastrous, but it's not it's not exactly what they would prefer. But as China, you know, releases these maps and things like this, it's going to aggravate Japan and South Korea as well, because Japan views the whole of total, if China, you know, totally dominates Taiwan, they're probably going to even further extend the, the nautical barrier and their perceptions of it, because they'd be able to project their naval power. And South Korea's, you know, they've been facing a lot of, you know, the North Koreans, you know, they've been gotten a lot of support from the Russians and the Chinese recently, so they've been emboldened in their missile tests and their rhetoric against South Korea and Japan. So it seems that, you know, the Japan and Japan is, you know, rearming itself for the first time since, you know, World War II, which is, is pretty interesting. Just an hour ago, prior to us recording this, North Korea actually shot some uh, cruise, missile, uh, cruise missiles into the uh, South, uh, the Yellow, and I believe it was the South China Sea, essentially. And they said they were simulating scorched earth nuclear attacks on their future rivals. So North Korea continuing with the military testing, you know, shooting the scene next to Okinawa, next to Taiwan, essentially uh, triggering a lot of the um, American alerts there. And you know, simply shooting these missiles into the sea, really not doing any, any harm to anybody besides the fish and the... And uh, and then the, and the fauna and the sort of maybe some doing some light pollution, which also maybe triggers greenies and people of that particular set of mind. But yeah, it it, it does of course uh, it does of course um, make us think that possibly when Shoigu did meet, we spoke about Shoigu meeting with the Minister of Defense of Turkey. Shoigu, of course, being almost like this diplomatic figure, this sort of a uh, grim reaper traveling around, bolstering the people's beliefs and in themselves, and you know, traveling to North Korea and giving Kim Jong Un whatever he he needed and. And of course, speaking to him, and now North Korea actively conducting missile tests almost on a weekly basis and upsetting the U.S. forces in the Pacific Ocean. I think it's quite amusing. Uh, in regards to the BRICS news, of course, one one more thing is that the Russian central bank actually moved the yuan ahead of the U.S. dollar on the on. There's almost like a, there's a transaction sheet which essentially shows what you can convert the Russian ruble into. And of course, the most free, most popular currencies would be the yuan, the U.S. dollar, and the euro. So the yuan actually 
for some reason switched was switched with the US dollar and the euro. So from came from the third position to the first. I think that was mostly done artificially, but also it does show this uh, massive. Uh, I guess it's a symbolic victory for for Russia and for BRICS claiming that look, despite us dealing with the American dollars a lot, you know, being dependent on it for the last thirty years or so since the collapse of the USSR, we are moving more towards the yuan and towards this. Uh, BRICS multipolar corporation rather than being dependent on the American fiat system. Yeah, I'm thinking again as something like a real estate market collapse or credit bubble pop in the next five years, we're really going to see the possibilities of not just these alternative currencies, but where the crypto direction, whether it's just going to be a digitized, you know, blockchain version of an established currency, or if some of these, you know, multinational, you know, corporate, you know, just established blockchain projects are going to take off, whether Bitcoin will become, you know, a universal thing, we're going to be able to see all of that as well. But you talked about the meeting between the Turkish foreign minister and Shoigu and all of that, which it does seem that, you know, both parties want to get the grain deal back on. Russia just wasn't able to take the open lane onto its territory from the Black Sea, that it was uh, basically allowing for that to happen. But uh, this is somewhat recent. Uh, Peskov said that Putin and Erdogan plan to meet in Sochi on uh, September 4th, which, you know, that'll be right after this is recorded, really. So if that happens, that'll be big news. But this comes along big clashes between Turkish proxies and then Russian forces as big things go down in Syria as these Arab tribes rebel against Kurdish forces, you know, basically everybody in the region, you know, Russian and U.S. anti-ISIS forces, Kurdish forces, you know, pro, pro-Syrian Assad forces. I guess only the Turks really seek to gain in this situation, but I guess that might be something that Putin and Erdogan talk about. Yeah, that's right. I think Russian presence in Syria is still upholding Assad's regime, still bombing some of these, what's it, uh, they're referred to as HTS forces in northwest Syria. Essentially, um, you know, there's claims that they're related to al-Nusra, possibly uh, previous ties to, you know, now the whole, I guess, almost a mythological organization called al-Qaeda, essentially US-based. And in, and so that's in the northwest of Syria. So there's clashes going on between the Syrian army and the Russian air force. On occasion, roughly once a week, Russian air, air, aircraft actually fly out of Damascus and actually bomb these areas um, belonging to these rebels in the northwest corner. And again, in central Syria, the same thing, of course, continues. Uh, not as escalated and as as fiery as what's happening in the northwest, but still there are remnants of, I suppose, uh, they're still referred to as ISIS forces in central Syria, and they are still bombarded by the Russians on a, almost a weekly basis. So Russians are still quite active. Their forces in Syria, of course, diminished perhaps between five and 10,000 troops only at least, maybe mostly naval as well as uh, Russian Air Force personnel. So actually, ground forces are almost completely Syrian, but the Russians are still providing this support to Assad, essentially uh, cover. Which you know, we we look at countries like Libya in the past that definitely didn't have this sort of Russian support, and the regime of Gaddafi did fall to the insurgents, uh, you know, which were funded by the United States and other. Uh, Western nations. So, you know, there is that consideration. I think Russia has learned its lesson from the past and it understands that it doesn't need to continually monetarily as well as in a military sort of regime does need to support Assad and his um, and his army. But yeah, what's happening in the northwest of Syria, I think it's, you know, the, the, all the media is claiming this is the greatest escalation in the last four years of the Syrian conflict. We, ha- we have at least 20 people, uh, no, not 20. So in August 26th, 11 Syrian military personnel were killed. And August the 25th, seven, seven HDS members were killed, allegedly just outside of Aleppo in the countryside. So the northwest Syria is very much a light. And we are seeing small clashes, not on the same scale as Ukraine, Russia, but still we are, we are seeing these militants um, who are 
somewhat Islamic, but mostly ethnically Arabic, actually. They're not, they're not quite Kurdish in their nationality, and they seem to be, it's still kind of unknown exactly who these people are. I think mostly Arabic tribesmen led by some sort of uh, Islamic extremism, but not on the scale of ISIS. We definitely don't see that same black flag ideology that we saw earlier in the Syrian war a few years ago. So it almost seems like a almost a tribal conflict going back to maybe a few decades back when the Assad regime was still establishing itself. Something perhaps almost like a post-colonial state, which the Middle East was in um, after the Second World War, which saw these small tribal clashes along the Middle East and some of these borders were drawn, essentially dividing tribes up. But yeah, definitely uh, Syria is looking extremely hot right now and very dangerous for the locals living there, including local Christians and local Muslims alike. Very unfortunate. And unfortunately, that conflict extends to Cyprus. This week, there was big uh, clashes between the Blue Helmets and the British, you know, peacekeeping forces and Turks who, you know, they claim that, you know, the growing population of Greeks on the, on the occupied side in one border town is, you know, a big problem. And so then they ended up attacking the British forces. Three of them ended up getting injured. And then, of course, the Turks, you know, this it shows you how we talked about this with David, how strong Turkish support is for the Cyprus issue. You know, Erdogan condemned the Greeks and the Brits, you know, supported the Turks, you know, the head of the occupied Cyprus, you know, condemned them, obviously, which, again, that's like that's like me. That would be like me citing the uh, uh, Igor Strelkov I mean not quite as not quite as bizarre but like as far as the law is concerned you know me citing Igor Strelkov of the Donetsk People's Republic in 2014 this northern Cyprus is not a recognized entity but it, it just shows you that Turkey you know and the Turkish proxies are you know they operate for Turkey and even in certain situations those Turkish proxies end up fighting a joint collaboration of Syrian Arab army US and Russian forces because of because of their location and of course they also end up even fighting British UN blue helmets which we know that Turkish and British interests very often align even to the point where you know it, that goes back to even earlier than the British French alliance in some ways, which shows you how how ancient some of those things are. But of course, when it comes to Russia, Turkey and the UK are very much very much aligned. Of course, Russia with its meetings in Sochi and all these attempts to win over the grain deal seems to want to keep Turkey in the neutral position. But I think you know, like Strelkov said, like many have said in the Orthodox sphere, I think that's a futile a futile effort. Maybe it's best to shore off your you know, to shore off the conflict as long as you can. But I think we all know that a clash is coming between those two parties. Naturally. And, and the other really sad, sad thing between, you know, Turkish-Russian relations, we all want them to be positive when we all want some sort of benefits to come out for the Orthodox community in Turkey and in some of these other states and Greece and Cyprus. But that's not what the Russians are dealing with Turkey about. Essentially, it's all about money, trade, grain deals. It's all it's all about monetary considerations. We spoke about the agricultural Russian bank, which is completely state-owned, and the Patrushva family obviously having their hand in it and how they, you know, Russia really wanted the agricultural bank to be reconnected with SWIFT in Europe so they could make transactions and benefit from the grain deal. And it, the grain deal, of course, greatly benefits Russia, but also Turkey. And it seems like there isn't that consider imagine the like think about the schism think about the ecumenical patriarchate issue the pressure you could of course apply to some of these bizarre schismatics or even have erdogan speak to some of these people working in the fanar maybe uh you know there's all kinds of strings that could be pulled from an active russian uh f foreign political sense if russia was of course interested in in these schisms being overcome but at the moment as we're you know if, if we are going to mention church issues slightly it does seem like 
it almost it's almost completely monetary it's almost completely commercial these of course these talks and instead of speaking about the church issue very often the russians do speak about providing free grain to the africans which we spoke we we mentioned this before when the africans did visit russia for the second summit this year is that a lot of that grain actually went to europe none of it went to africa and in fact putin did make considerations and at this talk he did say that look we will be delegating a lot of free grain which was essentially i guess you could almost call it humanitarian aid at this point pro bono donations of food to the africans which is great but again what uh, i mean it's almost like a like a this humanitarian uh, united nations type religion where it's like okay humanitarian aid to all the poor countries but how about benefiting benefiting the church benefiting christianity in these regions in any capacity maybe that should be put on the table as well and erdogan does have a lot of influence and mind you like we have greek metropolitans visiting kiev on on very, very, very often, and in fact, uh, the, the Greeks do have a very large presence in in Ukraine, in Kiev. Perhaps some pressure could be put on them in order to s stop, uh, kind of calm the pro persecutions down. But that's not being done. And in fact, it's all all the talk is about money and commercial trade, and so that's slightly disappointing, at least in my end. Yeah, I agree. I think you know, hopefully, as civilization reemerges out of this secular, you know, hell we've lived in this past century, that we'll see that priority begin to emerge. I think we are. And of course, that's going to manifest itself in tribalism as, you know, people start to care more about their personal ethnic, religious, cultural identities as, you know, the problems of this melting pot world that we created come to fruition. You know, that that's not going to be very good for countries like the US, the UK that really went all in on diversity. People talk about how that might not be good for Russia. But again, the Muslim entities of Russia, with the exception of a few cities, are very much regionally segregated. So as far as that goes, Russia is actually in a much better position than other multicultural areas. But I think we want to talk about, we talk about Sir Turkey, Russia, Greece, even. We got to talk about uh, these fires that are going on a little bit more. And I want to hand the mic over to our good friend Panayotis from the Orthodox Christian Miracles and Prophecies YouTube channel. He had a great video talking about some of St. Paisios's words too you know, some of his disciples and spiritual children about these fires. I'm going to hand it over to him. Being September 2023, and now we have another one of his prophetic words, and that has to do with the fires in Greece. So St. Paisios said, Vethamini vasos ya vasos simbatridamas, vethafisun, Prasino ya prasino, which means there won't be a forest left in our country. They will not leave any green. So these prophetic words were said to at the time, which was in July 1992, to Yanni Kazako, which now he's a priest. At the time, he was an English teacher in Patra, and he newly arrived from Toronto, Canada. And he says that he met St. Basio in Panaguda of Mount Athos. He says, I was impressed that for quite some time, he talked to us about fires, fires and arson in Greece. I wondered to myself, why is he focusing on this issue so much? Then we did not have this tragic phenomenon, neither so intense. He told us absolutely nothing about climate change. But he said, there won't be a forest left in our homeland. They won't leave any green. The fires will be deliberately lit, both from insiders and outsiders. 
and for the interests of some, hearing grace, but also from the non-religious. It will be from the non-religious inside Greece and from our neighbouring country with laser beams and modern technology, but also from Greeks inside our homeland, traitorous atheists. All these things will serve the way for the Antichrist so that the people won't be able to hide in the woods in times of persecution. The chlorophyll of the leaves prevents you from seeing under the trees with this technology and lasers if there are people hidden. So they will burn everything to have visibility everywhere to control the universe. The priest goes on to say, I heard all this from the lips of St. Paisios, the Ayoriti, in July 1992. They are not mine. This is what the saint told us, which is so relevant now today. Father Ignatios Kazakos. Now, that was great. His channel is fantastic. Be sure to check that out. We'll have it linked below. You know, maybe we'll talk to him on the show. I think we'd love to have him as a guest. He's a great guy, has some great content during COVID and the vaccine era. He did some great stuff, had a fantastic interview with Archbishop Makarios of the Patriarchate of Alexandria, who at one point told his entire, you know, his entire flock, everyone under his homophorion, you know, under his episcopacy to not get, you know, the COVID vaccination, which is very very keyed, but, uh, you know, St. Paisios, you know, if those are the kind of things that freak you out, or you don't like hearing, you know, crazy prophecies about things like directed energy weapons, you know, you can just turn this off, ignore this, don't let anything you hear on here freak you out or cause you to start questioning anything, you know, that's, you don't have, it's not like to be orthodox, you have to believe in the directed energy weapon prophecies, right, you know, that's, I get, you know, if I'm not, that's, if I, I know we have some, some people get really freaked out about stuff and can't just, you know, listen to people talk about interesting things, right? That's what we like to do. But, you know, you know, here on the show, we do take the words of St. Paisios and, you know, the recountings of his trusted disciples and what they say about what he said. We take those things fairly seriously. But again, we've been talking about directed energy weapons, you know, you know, ethereal weapons, earthquake machines, these things for a while on the show now. And there's a lot of evidence for the Maui fire directed energy weapon theory. The evidence has been mounting. And again, what St. Paisio said, like Panayotis was saying, isn't just about lasers and weapons that, again, the military has admitted by 2020 would be operational. There's Space Force documents coming out admitting that now they're going to be doing satellite-to-satellite -satellite laser weaponry and everything. I don't even know how real that is, but they're, they're claiming there's going to be lasers coming from the sky, which... Again, we've seen images, I've seen test footage from the military of them shooting down drones with these directed energy weapons, these dues as they're called, these rail guns. And, of course, that's going to be something that could be used to start fires. But even St. Paisios talked about, you know, quote-unquote traitors within Greece, you know, starting some of these fires. And it's already been, there's already been firefighters that have been arrested for starting fires in Greece. There's been illegal immigrants, as you know, the migrant problem with Turkey increases that have been caught starting fires, doing arson, some even with connections to environmentalist NGO groups. And uh, St. Paisios never talked about some climate change agenda or that kind of stuff. He did speak about, you know, those who would ultimately seek to bring about a one-world government doing these kinds of things. Like Paniotti said, make there be no more trees, you know, no more places to hide, you know. 
I'm not one of those people that says you just need to go hide in the woods and that'll solve everything. But I think it's definitely true that they're going to make it even harder to go, you know, in a woods, as they say, and just live out that peaceful life that Metropolitan and the Ophitos talked about. You know, Rich, we have a retreat to the country, you know, grow some food, have, you know, a freedom, have a little bit of respite from the hustle and bustle of the city. They're going to try to make that as hard as possible, you know, put you into the 15-minute city, get you on the on the social credit system, get you on the everything app. Look, we love X, but I think there's a bit of, uh, there's a few dangerous implications for all of that, which that leads us right into the ADL stuff. But Dimitri, I want to get your thoughts on the, on the fires and the, and St. Paisios and the Eastern Mediterranean in general, if there's anything else you have to say. Yeah. Just having visited Greece, uh, before the COVID period, several times in my life, it's, it's very unfortunate what's happening. It's a lovely countryside. And of course, very ancient. Some of those forests, obviously hundreds of years old, and there's all that history in the land and those who love, love their classical history and education really appreciate, it. but also just the vast amount of just that land itself. It's just been so entrenched in or the Orthodox faith, or, you know, there's been monks and, uh, people living in those places for so long. And now, of course, they're all set of light, uh, set alight. And it's very indicative of exactly, I suppose, the spiritual path of Greece in recent decades has not been very good. In fact, it's St. Paisios' words that you know keep us somewhat sober. And he was, of course, a Greek man through and through and a Greek Orthodox man of the highest of the highest regard, but we have to consider that he came from Mount Athos, and that was his particular lineage, and Mount Athos is very different from what you do see, do see in mainland Greece. Unfortunately, his opinions and the opinions of the Athenite monks and elders and those actually living away from the world are very different from what you hear about on Greek television and maybe in large Greek cities such as Athens, and you know there is that to consider as well. Greece has the benefit of having all of these holy places, so they can always return to the faith. You know, We mentioned this you know, April hour episode, just how these original Orthodox countries, you can say Greece, Bulgaria, uh, Serbia, um, and even, I guess, the new Orthodox countries such as, such as Romania, they always have this benefit of essentially not really depending on a large power such as Russia to do anything because they can self-sustainably reinvigorate themselves through all the holy places they already have on their own soil. They have monasteries, churches, relics, miracle working icons, traditions, prayers, local places they can visit. Every every single person has a church within 10 minutes of them in Greece. So in fact, the country itself can always, of course, return to the faith, rejuvenate itself. But whether or not it will do that will, of course, depend on the people themselves. And perhaps these big disasters with you know, fires and war, of course, we all know that comes from sin. And of course, God permitting these disasters to occur on Greek land, essentially, I suppose, would be in his providence to enlighten and not not really to enlighten but to call the to call people to repentance naturally for their own salvation and for them to of course look inwards upon themselves and to actually fix fix themselves which you know essentially the same is happening in russia and ukraine the war between two brotherly people you could say almost the same people essentially a civil war of sorts but it is occurring because of the sins of these people themselves naturally at the end of the day that is it's not because of even the globalists it's because of sin and so the same goes for these natural disasters and the fact that saint paisios clairvoyantly has prophesied and predicted these fires is of course not surprising because he was so attached to the greek land and they're very fortunate for having him as a great saint over there but they, they should listen to his words a lot a lot more often i believe it was elder ephraim who said that you know at this point the greek people the greek nation morally speaking they're rolling around in their own excrement so i guess that kind of thing will eventually lead to lead to fires that's something that metropolitan Yofitos, i think recounted from elder ephraim and of course we're grateful to greece and the greek people for sending us such a great saint in elder ephraim here in north america but i think that uh all of that leads us into you know kind of our final big thing to talk about we were talking about 
you know, X and Twitter, and a huge story has emerged with hashtag ban the ADL on X, which has, you know, gone huge. I contributed to some of the earliest posts, you know, you know, I was called to the task by, you know, Keith Patriots, such as Keith Woods, Nick Fuentes, you know, we were posting, getting great impressions. And now as I'm talking about this, you know, I think over 150,000 tweets, it was at number one trending on Twitter multiple times. People are talking about the ADL. The ADL had to issue a statement calling everybody involved anti-Semitic, you know, no shocker there. But Elon Musk responded to Keith Woods, said that the ADL is like the number one source trying to strangle X and Twitter. Of course, this came in the aftermath of Linda Yaccarino apparently requesting a meeting with Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL. Uh, Jonathan Greenblatt then posting about it, saying that he's more hopeful about the direction of X and that they'll be ready to call them out and hold them responsible if they let, you know, the specter of anti-Semitism emerge again. You know, the ADL, for those that don't know, the Anti-Defamation League was started to lie about uh, Leo Frank, who was lynched after avoiding execution for the rape and murder of a 13-year-old girl, Larry Fagan. And again, in the South, with even a a jury of five Jews... This guy was convicted of the murder. He tried to blame a black guy. It didn't work. And he, of course, you know, somehow managed to escape the death penalty because they took it all the way up to the Supreme Court and everything. Everyone knew that he did it. But, of course, they again said, oh, I guess we'll just give him life in prison. But the locals, they didn't see that as justice. So they broke in and took matters into their own hands. And I think if that's, that's the way that this organization started, was defending this guy, trying to say he was innocent, which history shows that he was not. And here we are, having this organization. They've been since day one. I wrote an article about this on TurleyTalks.com. We'll have it linked below. I kind of go into all of this. But this, this hashtag went crazy, did crazy numbers, and there was a huge Twitter space. I was in the Twitter space. I was spitting some fire, talking with people like Laura Loomer. I saw Patrick Henningsen was in there, all sorts of other big names, uh, Lucas John Gage, uh, yeah, a bunch of people were talking in there, a lot of great stuff. Keith was in there at one point. But people are really starting to kind of become aware of the nefarious influence of Jewish power in general, but even more specifically kind of Zionist supremacists, these these organizations specifically like the ADL, the SPLC, with their huge $500 million war chests, their maximum amount of taxpayer dollars that they could receive you know, they're basically also supported by the state of Israel themselves on the space. I talked about Canary Mission, which, you know, literally just doxes students and young people for not supporting the state of Israel and basically says that, you know, we'll get your name, we'll get this Google result calling you an anti-Semite off the front page of Google. Like the first thing when you search your name, this is what comes up. We'll take that down if you write us this groveling apology letter, which is just, it's just such scummy behavior. You know, it's total literal blackmail and they just use the you know, the institutional power that they've created through nepotism to to do these sorts of things. And I'm really proud of the community, as you say, for doing this. You know, it was very telling who was and wasn't talking about this. It got to the point where Charlie Kirk, Matt Walsh, they're talking about hashtag ban the ADL. Everyone realizes, you know, even philo-Semitic people, I guess, were able to hop on this because the ADL is such a nefarious organization. And I'm all for it, you know, ban them. And it's not against free speech either. The ADL declared war on X slash Twitter's, you know, finances, trying to make them financially insolvent due to their commitment to free speech. And I say, if that's your goal, then you're not entitled to the free speech of the platform. Get the hell out of here. You know, like, I don't need to see, first of all, no one wants to see your Holocaust propaganda all the time and, you know, your other nonsense. But no one definitely needs to hear you lobbying about how you're going to get the advertisers taken off because you let people, because the platform lets people talk about whatever they want. That's just ridiculous, you know. 
Nobody has to deal with that. And why the American people, frankly, deal with this at all. Of course, dealing with it on X is one thing. Why they deal with it at all in their government and society is an entirely different question. I think they need to be, you know, driven back into the sea, back over to Israel where they belong. But one thing that's interesting is those that didn't tweet about this. And who didn't tweet this out? None other than our good friends Jackson Hinkle and Haas. And sure, maybe Jackson Hinkle was just too busy for his fresh and fit appearance, but he was on Twitter all day. I'm sure he saw it. So we know that these guys are, you know, allergic to talking about this question. They, you know, they are anti-Zionist. That's what they claim. But they just completely refuse to engage in the civilizational battle that is Christendom versus world Jewry. You know, they reject Rome entirely. They have no concept of of the third Rome, of the dynasties to come. They don't understand the prophecies. They never have. They never will. Haas is brown. Jackson Hinkle is short and, you know, doesn't know anything about history. This is how these things end up going. But it's just unfortunate, you know, on Fresh and Fit, he refused to engage honestly with the question. He slammed Dimitri. I believe you asked him a question on Fresh and Fit, and he just ran the wrong direction Mm -hmm. with it. That's right, yeah. So, I did uh, throw in a small donation to the Fresh and Fit podcast, which, you know, it does have very interesting interviews on at times. And I asked Jackson Hinkle a very kind of explicit question regarding, because Jackson Hinkle, being an inquirer into orthodoxy, he would know certain positions of the Orthodox Church regarding communism. So the question was, how does he, of course, what is his position on Marxism, given the fact that a lot of Orthodox saints have explicitly named them boys, as well as, you know, I don't have to explain who them boys are, as well as explicitly commented on communism and marxism as being demonic right and jackson hinkle holding to this position i mean his appearance on the podcast he did praise lenin and stalin to all the young folks listening which was extremely disturbing i wouldn't personally do that in fact anybody i find somewhat controversial i'd probably hold my tongue before praising before any sort of audience even even here on world war now podcast i wouldn't necessarily praise a certain figure and say this guy's great just because um, i've heard it one or two good things i think that would be extremely dangerous but Openly praising somebody as demonic as Lenin and Stalin, who were confirmed by, you know, our local Russian church tradition as being in hell and anathematized and apostates and clear Judases to their own church is, of course, I think, very dangerous. And it's very misleading to all the young people listening. So Jackson Hinkle gave a pretty bad, uh, gave a pretty bad image for all his uh, Christianity on this uh, Fresh and Fit podcast. And he didn't really answer my question, which I submitted, and you know, in fact, he ignored it completely, and he didn't want to speak to the fact that, well, communism and them boys are explicitly condemned, and they're you know related in the works of the saints, especially those of the 20th century. Which, if you read my um, contra Marxism ar- uh, article in the World War Now Substack, you will see a few of the quotes and excerpts, which were of course researched, and there's a lot more articles to come. Especially the the evidence is pretty overwhelming from the Russian Orthodox tradition that look, you can't really be a communist and be an Orthodox Christian in the fullest sense. It's somewhat of a somewhat of a mental illness in order to try and combine these two things in, in, into one. And so, Mr. Hinkle simply not understanding that is, I think, detrimental not just to himself, but because he has such a large audience. It is very uh, spiritual, spiritually and mentally detrimental to all those listening to him because, well, these two things simply cannot coexist. So I would say a pretty bad witness from him on the issue. Yeah, I mean, look, he was seething. He was scared. He said he made it very clear. He's like, I don't know who this Orthodox canonist guy is. Like, yes, you do, bro. We have the Discord screenshots. We've seen you, you know, asking your lackeys for help on this. We've seen you admitting that it's hard. You know, the, all the Orthodox sources, even the most pro-Soviet ones, admit that there was extensive persecution and mistakes. So it's just a dishonest position to, you know, 
and then he associated you with he's like all these people that love hitler not, there was nothing about hitler in the super chat there, no one was talking about hitler just because people before in other super chats were talking about jewish bolshevism and whatnot does not mean that everybody targeting you just loves hitler he does the whole thing where oh because there's all the Sonnenrad, you know swastika posters in ukraine therefore you know zionism and nazism there's two sides of the same coin and therefore communism transcends the dialectic it's like no bro like that's that's part of establishing a much more nefarious dialectic than than even what you're trying to trying to bait us there with but you know it's it's, it's not surprising that you know those guys who i think at this point are clearly there's something nefarious going on there the whole operation's fishy to me uh, Hinkle's going to Russia. He says he's going to interview Dugan. I want everybody to know that support us, you know, sign up for the premium on Substack, get access to the Ether Hours, because then we can maybe afford to go interview people like Dugan. And I can assure you that the content will be 45,000 times more interesting if we're interviewing Dugan or if we're interviewing Strelkov or if we're interviewing Putin or Lukashenko or anybody, because we will get down to the civilizational core of these things and get the best out of those kinds of people. I can assure you, you know, I've been i've been training for this my whole life i was made for this you know this is this that's the kind of thing that i could that we'd knock out of the park and i can assure you that jackson hinkle is going to try to be getting blase answers and you know lukewarm support for his larpy attempt at re resurrecting communism in the west from people like dugan and i'm really not that interested yeah i would say definitely uh that Russian fit interview is probably not worth watching we'll clip it a few times just to show you guys essentially the the few the pure degeneracy that occurred on there but you know, it, Fresh and Fit having such a large audience and putting somebody like Jackson Hinkle and Orthodox Inquirer on is, of course, on one hand, it's a good thing because there is a potential that he may speak about Christianity. It ended up being a complete blowout and essentially him him just praising communism, praising Lenin, Stalin, uh, not mentioning Christianity at all. In fact, just speaking speaking ill of Christianity by simply praising communism. It's uh, it was very inconsistent, and I would say generally quite degenerate there are better interviews to watch and just a recommendation for any russian listeners if you do understand russian if you can at least uh listen to it there are some really good interviews out there for example recently in the last month um metropolitan tikhon obskov Shevkunov, you know every uh, author of everyday saints there are almost there are two really big interviews on youtube about him they're almost completely censored by the algorithm but if you type in you'll see them one with Ksenia Sobchak and one with uh, a more sort of right-wing orthodox journalist and he answers some pretty explicit questions about the SMO in the Russian language the other interview of course was between the Metropolitan Leonid the exarch of Africa on Sadgarad which where in 50 minutes he gives probably the most extensive answers we've ever seen on the Russian Alexandrian church ecclesiastical issue where he says that look we're not in communion with Alexandria anymore and our main goal is to provide um provide orthodox missionary work to the African people and so we'll be spreading orthodoxy in Africa irrespective of what Alexandrian church thinks and that's just an that's just a quick snippet of the interview so it's the first time we've seen a Russian bishop essentially so openly in an interview give his direct position and you know it was uh, it's good to see that sort of transparency from the Russian church not being it, it, despite being this big bureaucratic structure not being so I suppose cut off from the people you know giving these interviews it's really I suppose enlightening for us regular lay, lay people to hear the hear our uh, bishop leaders speak about some of these uh, almost you know, drastic schism level issues in the church and of course the, the third or the third or the fourth interview was between uh, I guess the main Russian missionary priest the father uh, Georgi Maximov. So George Maximov gives an interview of the most popular Ukrainian layman in the church. He moved from, he was actually in Ukrainian prison in late 2022 and was released when the Russians exchanged some 
some of the Ukrainian prisoners with the Russians. They actually got him out of prison. He was sentenced to 12 years of Ukrainian prison for being anti-Zelensky. And this man, his name is Jan, Jan Taksur. He lived in Kiev his entire life. He's technically an ethnically, ethnic Ukrainian. He always considered himself a Russian Orthodox person. He was a popular Russian Orthodox journalist and in Ukraine, so Ukrainian Orthodox as well. He was supportive of the Metropolitan Anufri in the canonical church, published lots of articles. He's 70 years old, so he's quite an elderly fellow, but not too old. And now he's, of course, now he's, of course, living in Moscow in relative safety, and he can actually speak on the church issue in Ukraine. And he gave this very powerful interview to Father George Maximov. And Father George has a big YouTube channel. I think it's, last time I checked, it was over 60,000 subscribers, which is quite a lot for a Russian-speaking channel. And Jan Taksur speaks to Father George and gives his honest opinion as the biggest Orthodox journalist from Kiev on this particular issue of the church, of the the OCU, of the UOC, all of the schism, how what's happening with the units, etc. Very, very good interviews. But again, they're not translated into English. So unfortunately, the English audience won't appreciate them enough. And simply, you know, it would be a bit too difficult this time to translate them actively. So we do await maybe some good automated translating services so we can get them out to the public. But if you do understand Russian, search these interviews up. They'll give you a more insightful look on what's happening, at least in the ecclesiastical realm of the Russian of the Russian world, the Russian church. Yeah, you know, I wish I could speak Russian. I wish I could speak Greek. There's one thing I've learned since I started this show. It's that I really wish I could speak those languages, all the Orthodox languages, Georgian, Romanian, I mean, every language in general, that'd be just amazing. Maybe, you know, I'll be the first to fall for the Babelian technology, like the jabber worm you put in your ear, lets you understand every language, you know, it'll be tough for me to resist that because I'll want to, I'll want to be able to talk to everybody, read everything. But, you know, you talk about this stuff going on in Russia and Russian Orthodox people, we want to hear what's going on with Strelkov, of course. He's still in prison. He was not let out of, you know, he wasn't given house arrest or anything like that. So we have his September 18th, you know, trial coming up or he first initial kind of reason to testify and everything. So we're going to be watching that closely. But, you know, it does appear that, you know, they're maybe punishing him a little harder than we may have expected they would. We're going to, you know, we're going to remain hopeful. There's been a lot more protests in the street. People get ticketed, of course, but I've seen a lot of support, including even from the front lines, videos of soldiers coming out in support of Strelkov. Dmitry, I don't know if you have any other updates. Yeah, I suppose uh, like uh, clips came out of Strelkov's wife was, of course, at the hearings and she gave, she testified that, look, her husband will be will be fine on the house arrest given his heart issues, which Strelkov tried to keep a secret for so long. It doesn't benefit Strelkov at all or benefit the Russian state, doesn't benefit the Russian community for Strelkov to be held in prison until the September the 15th, I believe, the next when the next hearing will be on. So, And his daughter, of course, is going to school. She's six or seven years of age. So this is, of course, just the politically, this is an abuse of, ju- of the justice system in Russia, and the legal implications are quite powerful for Strelkov. Again, his recent um, <laughs> quite satirical post in his Telegram where he says he'll be running for the presidential race in Russia in 2024, and he gave a few points as to why he's he's a better presidential candidate than you know Vladimir Putin. And he said that, I, I guess we would actually agree with some of those points, including the first point where he says, look, I, I'm not aligned with any oligarchs, and you know he doesn't name them boys explicitly, but you know that that is kind of it is it should be said Stelkov's record is kind of uninfringible. He hasn't ever cooperated with any of these shady people behind the scenes. He didn't have the need to. And Stelkov, you know, an interesting fact about him, despite him being in prison, he may be the only Orthodox leader in recent history who's actually executed criminals like through capital punishment. Like officially, legally speaking, he has held tribunals in the Donetsk People's Republic and he's executed free people for 
maraudering, assault, sexual assault included, and you know, maraudering including uh, military equipment as, as well, stealing. So he's admitted to that, and he said that look, we've held tribunals and we have executed people. So when you think about you know Orthodox leaders of the past, especially some some like Saint Vladimir of Kiev being called upon by the bishops to you know, of course, engage in capital punishment to keep the land safe. Stilkov is the only leader in modern Orthodox history who's actually executed criminals for really power, you know, for really grave offenses. So, you know, it's almost like an archetypical heroic figure we have who's essentially record is uninfringed. So we're, of course, pro-Stilkov. He was on the metaphysical edge of civilization and was tasked by God with, you know, dispensing justice in a situation where the institutions were no longer there. And, you know, I've looked into those situations. I think he ended up making the right decisions. But, you know, that's the kind of situation where, you know, God puts you on the spot, you know. Yeah, and it speaks to a person's, uh, you know, I suppose, faith that he's held on to his faith through all these years of war and service to the Russian state and to the Russian people. Now, um, you know, it's really sad. And of course, his lawyer was really upset. His wife was upset after the hearing. And Pavel Gubarev, the former Donetsk politician from Novorossiya as well, was there at the hearing. And, you know, it is is somewhat... um, yeah, it's just somewhat gloomy, I guess, that fact. And I guess we're seeing this all over the world, right? We saw this in Romania of the Andrew Tate trials, very bizarre sort of situation there. House arrest, prison, and of course, with the Donald Trump, you know, indictments coming in as well. It's almost as if in all these various countries, there are the lawyers being used to sort of execute the opinions of some global elite over these individuals who speak out, right? It's, uh, it's very bizarre. And, you know, I'm not going to say all these people are on the same level. For example, Strelkov is on the same level as a figure like Andrew Tate, who's very, very different and very much not orthodox, and somebody like a Donald Trump as well. But we, we are seeing you know, so the long arm of the law essentially become corrupt and used against some of these people for you know the ends of this, some nefarious ends, I would say. No, I agree. I think you know there might have been some more recent revelations about Andrew Tate. Again, we never were fully on the Tate train, but some of the stuff, you know, it's getting pretty... It's getting pretty crazy, not looking too good for our, I don't even want to say our boy, it's just not looking too good for the that milk dud, you know, brown character. But I think uh, we're getting kind of close to the end. This isn't going to be the longest show we've ever done, but uh, the whole Prigozhin thing, it appears that he has been buried. Uh, that seems to have been announced again. If this is all just an elaborate ruse and him and Utkin are going to, you know, appear on the steps of the Rada and, you know execute Zelensky Bane style or something like that we're gonna be you know we're waiting to see it but it does appear that he is no longer with us he's been buried it was a fairly low-key affair uh it does seem that you know you know Wagner operations do still seem to be continuing around the world as far as I can tell a lot of them still are in Belarus a lot of the dismantling of the camps were just kind of being reshuffled uh what's kind of the status of everything going on in that situation yeah, I think the funerals are very interesting. Obviously, we saw Putin's official statement where it says that me and Prigozhin, you know, Prigozhin has done a lot for our... So he, he kind of says it in a very mafia-type sense where he says Prigozhin has done a lot for for the business, and it, like for our um, which essentially sounds like something of a, a Sicilian mafioso would say. And it's just like, well, what do you mean common thing? Like, what? You mean national security? Possibly President Putin? But, you know, them being from St. Petersburg, maybe that's just the slang they use. But Putin's statement about it being a horrible accident was taken. Essentially, what me and Conrad commented on last week was that it does look like it was an actual accident caused by some sort of diversionists who planted the bomb at the Shremetsiv airport. And whether or not somebody in the Kremlin was 
was responsible or maybe even negligently uh, turned a blind eye towards the planting of these bombs. Very possible. I guess we won't really find out anytime in the near future, same as, you know, most of these terrorist acts are very deeply covered, but it does seem like Prigozhin's funeral did go according to plan. He was buried at the Orthodox uh, Serafimova graveyard, which is really kind of, I guess it, it does show that this character wasn't really treated as a hero after death, even that Serafimova graveyard is really very kind of on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. Nobody really knows where it is. So the average citizen of St. Petersburg wouldn't know where Serafimova Seraphim of the Seraph Cemetery is, but uh, Prigozhin was buried on the outskirts. Um, allegedly, his wife didn't even attend the funeral. The wife of his body double was there instead. So again, in terms of like conspiracy theories, theories as to who exactly was at the funeral, and there are claims that Prigozhin's family did ask for a closed funeral, which is why the media wasn't really allowed to attend, but allegedly it was held in an orthodox fashion, and he was given a proper service. Meanwhile, Dmitry Utkin, of course, the multiple-time hero of Russia, um, essentially winner of all these awards, uh, medals of bravery and honor, is one of the most uh, prestigious Russian soldiers of the recent 30 years of the Russian Federation, has been buried at a much more prestigious cemetery, out the Matyshinsky Kladbyshev, right outside of Moscow. So these two maybe related figures are buried you know, hundreds of kilometers apart, and Dmitry Utkin, of course, a lot more easier to visit because his cemetery, of course, goes back almost to the Russian imperial period where famous officers were buried there, famous Soviet officers as well. And both of them, both, what's interesting is both Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin both have Orthodox crosses. So they both they were both baptized in the faith. Whether or not they were well catechized, I think is, uh, you know, I think we, we, we all know the answer to this. Um, Perhaps the Matyshinsky Cemetery is actually very close to, potentially close to the military cathedral as well, which would be interesting to see on the maps where it's located, if it's possibly worthy of visiting if anybody ever goes to Moscow in the near future, because you can kind of get two birds of one stone, visit a military graveyard as well as the big military cathedral recently constructed. But it, what's what's interesting is Father Andrei Tkachev, the most popular priest in the Russian media, did mention the fact that, well, you know, all the skulls and the... I guess pagan symbology, the the kuvaldi, the hammers, the possibly neo-Nazi symbols, the tattoos, possibly on Dmitry Utkin's shoulder shoulders, things like that. All these things are are not in condemnation of Wagner in and of itself. They're all symptoms of the fact that the Russian people, the majority of Russian adults, are badly catechized. And Father Andre said, look, 98% of the Russian adults are badly catechized. And because they haven't received that proper catechism that perhaps Orthodox converts receive, they, they almost have to play catch up with the Orthodox faith. And so they fall to other symbolisms, whether they be communist, neo-pagan, things of this nature. Hence, Wagner's symbolism perhaps isn't always the most Christian one. And he said, look, that's completely normal and understandable given the bad catechism state. But these people were still maybe even not so practicing, but they were still Orthodox Christians and they still defended Russia until their last breath. So that's, that was Father Andre's opinion. I thought it was quite good. And it does speak to the fact that, look, people in Ukraine and Russia, you may see very confused people simply because of that absence of catechism that came from, you know, not, I think it was one of the main issues that coming out of the Soviet period. And one of the great crimes of the communist uh, regime was the fact that people were not given proper catechisms growing up. And we still see the outcomes of that today. I agree. That's a you know, it's a problem in in any you know historically Christian country. You know, of course, these Protestant countries there really isn't much a thing such as catechism. So now there's just now there's just you know a void that's being filled by by evil. But speaking of you know poorly catechized Russians, you could say someone who's Russian in this situation is very poorly catechized. We have the Pope phoning in to talk to Russian Catholics, which again in Moscow and St. Petersburg, there's you know basically one. Milta City's fairly large Catholic church that all the Catholics kind of go to. It's really not that packed. 
you know, might be even more packed than some other churches just because it's the only Catholic church in the region. It's kind of like the mosques in some of these cities. They just have their one place that they can go, but they got to keep it low-key. They're not really allowed to evangelize. They're not treated quite like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who, you know, they get the jackboot of the state up their ass and get banned for being, you know, subversive intelligence operations that lead people into cultish lifestyles. But, you know, the Pope, he had some... uh Honestly, I, I hate to say it, but for the Pope, pretty based things to say. Definitely not, you know, Globo Homo approved. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, if you listen to, if you listen to Ether Hour, you might know what we have to critique from that perspective. You know, he did, let's just say he doesn't praise the greatest Russian emperors and leaders that we would pick. But Dimitri, what was, what was Bergoglio laying down? Well, I, I think the Pope, very interesting opinion, because he was praising essentially golden era Silver era Russian culture, essentially the where all the literature and poetics, of course, came from, and even great saints like Saint Philaret of Moscow, they came from that particular, uh, that particular uh, early Russian imperial culture. And you know, him praising that, him praising the, the sort of the reigns of the empresses who saw people like Fyodor Ushakov, Ad the Admiral, now Saint, as well as a possible future Saint Alexander Suvorov, him praising that particular Russian. That particular Russian history really does speak a lot because this is when Russia expanded the most under Peter the Great and uh, Empress Catherine, or since the time of Ivan the Terrible, who we speak about on our Eighth Hour episode. Like this is, these are very strong Russian monarchs who went, uh, you know, went through long, long periods of, of time, essentially pushing Russian interests abroad. So, very, very interesting opinion from the Pope. Definitely something Ukrainians would not be uh, would not be happy about, given the fact that you know uh, Catherine the Great did found towns like you know cities like Kharkiv and. Uh, Kherson, things like that. All those cities in Ukraine essentially contested at the moment were, were founded during Catherine the Great's reign. So again, it's very on the nose by the Pope. Um, I, I would say a lot of the things he does is very strange because with this one sermon type speech he gives to the Russians, kind of lifting their spirits, saying you are part of this great civilization culture. He then visits Mongolia, doesn't even stop his plane at Moscow or any Russian city, doesn't even visit Russia at all, which is you know, a bit disrespectful from him. He visits, what, what is it in Mongolia? There are less than two thousand catholics which remember we spoke about chinese orthodoxy and chinese how Ch in china orthodoxy was completely destroyed during the demonic reign of mao and the communists and the cultural revolution orthodoxy was annihilated in china it needed to be started anew and now there are you know roughly ten thousand chinese orthodox christians and catholicism is still somewhat lacking in a country like mongolia but the pope stops there and i think he's there right now actually as we speak but again doesn't visit russia doesn't give uh, russia that sort of credence of his presence which is interesting but he does say these interesting speeches kind of off the cuff right to like a closed off audience and it gets recorded and now now i think he'll the pope will probably be on the miratvorza list you know the kill list that the ukrainian state has but i just want to mention real quick i, I did make a mistake uh the the graveyard where at Mutishi is located completely in, in the northwest corner of Moscow. Meanwhile, the military cathedral, of course, is just the yeah. You know, I mean, sorry, it's just completely far away, so you can't actually visit both the graveyard and the cathedral at the same time. It will take almost you know, you'll have to visit it on a different day if that's your tour around Moscow. But yeah, just an interesting sort of uh, statement by the Pope there. I'd say um, maybe he's just speaking his mind, frankly, because you know some of these older Italian Latin folks they're quite they have a good classical education. He's a Jesuit. He's probably well read. He's probably read up his bunch of history history books, and he he actually does appreciate that uh, Baroque Russian culture. He does appreciate that period of Russian history, and he just kind of spit it out without thinking. So maybe not ex cathedra, so to speak, but yeah, I mean, we do support it. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the, you know, maybe the Pope was respecting Russia by not stopping there, considering, you know, it's not a Catholic country. Uh, but, you know, I think the, um, you know, Patriarch Kirill has made some somewhat ecumenistic statements. You know, we know like the Havana document and some of these other things that we are not fans of here on this show. But I think in general, you know, the Pope has to be careful with dealing with Russia because, look, they already tried, like, what is it, like the third or the fifth attempt at casting their magic consecration spell on Russia towards, like, the Immaculate Heart of Mary or whatever in light of the Fatima prophecies, and nothing has happened. Russia has not converted to Roman Catholicism. Russia will never convert to Roman Catholicism. So, while on the one hand, we know that this pope does love his, you know, synodality, you know, in many ways he would seek to lower himself in a synodal fashion while the ecumenical patriarchate elevates himself in a papal fashion for them to sort of meet in the middle for this gross ecumenistic religion where they'll then incorporate Islam as well or something like that. I really hope that, again, we've talked about this before, I don't mean to be you know, praising violence or anything, but if this war has done anything, I think in many ways it's protected Russian civilization from that demonic specter. And that's something that, you know, from a spiritual perspective, we can only be grateful for, just as we are grateful for other slings and arrows and trials that the Lord sends us. But I think, you know, the Pope is very much aware of that. This also comes amidst, Dimitri, you were talking about this as well, on celebration and synodal meetings between the Uniates and the OCU, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the Uniate Church of Ukraine, so essentially the Catholics who we spoke about in the Aether, our episode on the Union of Brest, which we're going into that history. The Catholic presence in Western Ukraine is quite significant, and they are very pro-Zelensky. The Metropolitan of the Uniate Church actually just this weekend, this um, this past weekend, gave this very powerful sermon where he called it the all the dead Ukrainian soldiers that he said that in heaven there is a legion of Ukrainian eagles or something of this sort who are who will be resurrected to fight for Ukraine once again. Some really bizarre like words which we heard maybe only on Maidan in 2014 that now this Union Metropolitan is speaking about here. So very, yeah, just kind of outlandish really. And we do see the Uniates aligning with Zelensky a lot more. But this conference that occurred between the OCU and the Uniate Church was very, like, it was almost like this a classical ecumenist conference where we have bishops from both sides, clergymen, and they're going to speak about how, you know, both these two different churches, this, you know, false church of Epiphany and this unique Catholic branch of the Catholic church need to kind of unite and support the current Zelensky regime, that there is this common Ukrainianism between them and they have to support this culture that, you know, it, it is unique and kind of independent in and of itself. And the church, of course, they, they mentioned the fact that uh, all culture comes from this one Christian heritage, united Christian heritage that we have in Ukraine. And, you know, this is weird because Catholicism was a new thing in Ukraine, right? Technically, it only goes back to the 1590s. If that, if, you know, since the Polish presence in Ukraine isn't really that far outstretched, and you, you, Catholicism was always a minority in Ukraine. So what exactly Epiphany and are these lunatics are thinking by trying to have this you know new union of rest 2.0 occur in Western Ukraine is, is just the... It's kind of outside of my my mind and how how the Fanar is involved, I'm not too sure. But yeah, we are seeing this is perhaps the first conference of this kind I've seen this year. And we are seeing this, uh, again, closening of both the Uniates and the OCU, which is uh, quite degenerate, if I would call it any any word. It would, you know, this is just straight up degenerate um, ecumenism, which the Saints, Metropolitan Philaret of New York, of the, the Rokul Hierarch spoke about. Father Seraphim Rose, of course, spoke about this. Uh, Elder Paisios, ecumenism is is demonic. And here we see ecumenism occur between schismatics and heretics at the same time, because we Orthodox Christians view the Catholics as the heretics. And of course, whoever epiphany is as schismatics. And according to the canons of the church, schismatics and heretics are essentially equivalent in terms of 
their fall away from true, true orthodoxy. So now we see the two cooperating, and it doesn't really surprise us. Yeah, that's the kind of ecumenism that makes you want to throw up, whereas the kind of ecumenism that we like to see is the concelebration recently between the Serbian, Macedonian, Romanian, and Bulgarian hierarchs who joined together in a, in a liturgy. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we, you know, is really encouraging in the midst of, like, again, this is a division in the church between the ecumenical patriarchate in Russia and then Alexandria and the Russians in Africa. And then, of course, that split in Cyprus where Metropolitan Neophytos is holding his ground. But, you know, here we can see this kind of very pan-Balkan way, you know, Romanians. And I think this is very much being led by Patriarch Porphyry of Serbs, I have to admit, just looking at all of this. You know, he's very much, I think, uniting people while managing to stand firm against you know, the forces in the Fanar and in, you know, the world, New World Order that are dismantling orthodoxy from Ukraine, attempting to dismantle orthodoxy with Ukraine as the focus. So, like I said, we're still seeing positive orthodox unity being moved forward. And I think, again, the midst of this war, Patriarch Kirill, and I don't think, you know, hopefully someone like, you know, Metropolitan Sabar, one of the people that succeed Metropolitan or Patriarch Kirill will have no interest in hanky-panky with the papacy or anything like that, unless, of course, they're willing to totally submit to orthodoxy. But with all of that, I'm, uh, you know, I'm about I'm about done for the day. I don't have anything much else to say unless there's anything you want to leave us with, Dimitri. Yeah, just, I guess, more more good news, especially to the Orthodox folks. You know, there was active veneration of the Don Fiatokos icon. This is the Donskaya Bogorodica icon. It goes back to the um, Dmitry Donskoy days when, the, according to tradition, the, uh, the Zaporozhye Cossacks who participated in this great fight of the Russian princes against the um, Mamaya and the Tatars actually brought this icon from the steppes in the 1300s, which this icon before that was unknown, but apparently the Cossacks had it in their village somewhere. And since then, the you know, the, the icon was present at the massive Kulikovo battle, um, which, of course, uh, was essentially the rise of Moscow and the rise of the Russian princedoms. And since then, it's been an active mir- miracle-working icon. It was uh, recently in Rostov-on-Don, the, you know, the city that Prigozhin you know, almost took, so to speak, and it received active veneration from all the soldiers stationed there, as well as the civilians, which was, you know, it's one of the great miracle-working icons of southern Russia, which was awesome to see. And and even even more awesome was, uh, there was footage released on the 27th of August of, in the small Russian village of Gorlovka, and Russian, formerly Ukrainian village, is actually right in, it's actually in Donetsk, and you might have heard about Gorlovka when we speak about Motorola, Givi, Strelkov, because Gorlovka is located close to Slavyansk, close to those regions, which, you know, active fighting for Gorlovka was happening during this, during the entire, since 2014, essentially, it's been in the news a lot. But this, uh, the, the Fiatokos icon, the softener of evil hearts began, of course, this icon was already streaming for quite some time, but... This, this footage, we're going to release it on our Twitter page and, and our Telegram if you want to have a look. It's incredible. So the, the myrrh is so, it's streaming down in these powerful large droplets coming down from the icon. A lady holds a plastic cup beneath the icon and the myrrh is just streaming down. It's just actively, it's a huge blessing. And the soldier holding it is just reading prayers and crying. It's just, it's a powerful, powerful video. And it shows that there are active miracle working God has sent these objects to us, these icons, these windows into heaven in order for for us to be closer to him, especially in those areas where they're needed most, when people's spirits needed to be, need to be uplifted, such as Gorlovka, you know, people like the Donetsk People's Republic on the front lines of absolute hell where hundreds and hundreds of people and thousands of people have already died. Uh, that That's where it's needed most. And, you know, we're seeing the, uh, this active miracle working uh, miracle working occur there. So, you know, we thank God for that and thank God for some of his miracles that occur every day. And even these visual signs, I'm, I'm sure they're really uplifting for all of us, you know, whether we would be living 
hundreds of whether we're living hundreds of kilometers away or right on the outskirts of the conflict um it's it's very nice to see that's a that's a good place to end all of this with all that being said worldwarnow.substack.com all the links will be in the description below whether you're listening on substack or youtube be sure to check that out subscribe to us for to get everything on ether hour you know go premium on substack it really helps us out it's not too expensive just seven dollars a month you get access to all of our premium episodes as well as the full length articles where we write about all sorts of subjects you know warrior clerics in the church african conflicts uh, Marxism, we dismantle that from an orthodox perspective. So be sure to do that. It really supports us. It helps it helps us bring you these free shows every week as well. And, you know, maybe it'll help us do some travel in the future to go to some cool places. But follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. I got into some great things this week. I've been posting stuff, talking in Twitter spaces, you know. Be sure to go on there. There's a lot of great content. Follow at WorldWarNow underscore on Twitter. That's where we post all sorts of great stuff. Follow Dimitri, of course, at OCanonist. Uh, be sure to follow us on Rumble World War Now. Follow us on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. It really helps us out. We're getting close to 3,000 subscribers, which is fantastic. We do live streams over there as well. Be sure to follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. That's a great place. That's where you're going to kind of get the first updates on what's actually going on on the ground. We get things there before almost anywhere else. So be sure to subscribe to all those places. Go premium. Get every episode of Ether Hour. Check out this week. You know, this past episode of Ether Hour was almost like a just a super meta World War Now. You know, we really get into some details. You know, we don't hold back. You know, there's a bit of I had to bleep some words out. I go off. So be sure to check that out. It'll be in the link, you know, down below. But with all that, Dimitri, uh, send us off. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Of course, if you do want to support, as Conrad said, the best way to do so is of course subscribing to the Substack because it's not just the monetary assistance, but you're also reading our articles, listening to the premium shows, giving us feedback on them because you know we do touch upon some pretty subjects which we cannot release for free. Simply said, they need to be behind the paywall. They need to be for premium listeners only, simply because you know uh, the world does not accept opinions such as those. And hopefully, um, you know we we appreciate all the attention we've been getting recently, and you know content has been improving over the last uh, last few months and there's some of the news is quite powerful so we do have to me and conrad do have to uh you know we don't exactly agree on everything so we do have to brief each other on exactly what's happening and the, the, some of the news is so striking frankly over the last few weeks that in fact you know it's not every episode almost takes it takes uh, many hours to prepare for let's just say because it does we do have to align we can't just go on any episode and have an active debate on exactly what we what we agree or disagree on but we appreciate the support and for all those church fathers um members of the clergy listening we ask for your blessing and we apologize if we make any mistakes or have said anything unseemly we uh we try not to we try to we, we are young men in the church and we are laymen but we, we do appreciate your support and your prayers as well for the project and if you fathers have any uh, recommendations or you know um any feedback we will appreciate and we'll take it on board but thank you for all our regular listeners as well and for any new listeners we appreciate your attention hopefully you had a good time listening to us and We'll see you on the next episode. God bless everybody.